0: Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Politically Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Chris McDaniel, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in studio today is Jason Rosenbaum of the St. Louis Beacon and
1: Joe Manis of the St. Louis Beacon.
0: And our guest this week is Senator Gina Walsh. Senator, thank you very much for joining us. Um, we don't have to switch studios today, which I'm sure our listeners will be very happy to hear. <laughs> it was a rough it was a rough sounding podcast last week. The We're second sorry half about was. that. No, yeah. well
1: it was still good. Roop was fine. Yeah. Yes,
0: yes, he was a good guest. So but Senator, why don't you start us off here? Tell us a little bit about yourself and, and how you got into Missouri politics. And also your, district. Where okay. your district, yeah, district. Yeah, where is your district? My district
2: is the first district north of the city. So it takes in Belfountain neighbors. Goes out and crosses over 270 into Spanish Lake. It is basically if you would be standing on uh, Brown Ro- or McDonald Boulevard. I'm old mm-hmm. enough to remember Brown Road. It's everything north of 270, east of Brown Road, and then it crosses over the highway over 270 when you get up near Bell Fountain neighbors and takes in unincorporated St. Louis County. So it's bordered by the two rivers. It's bordered by 270 for most of it in McDonald Boulevard. So I'm kind of like in the confluence.
0: And it encompasses some of the school districts that have been in the news this week. And I'm sure we'll be getting getting to that later. But for now, tell us a little bit about yourself and and how you got into
2: politics. Okay, I am uh, an asbestos worker by trade, which we are now called heat and frost insulators. I have 33 years in the trade. I was the first woman to do that. I did not know that. Yeah. And I am uh, widowed. I have three grown daughters. We have been, in fact, we didn't do the podcast because we had a wedding two weeks ago. (laughs) Yes, congratulations, by the way. (laughs) All the wedding jitters are over, and the bride and groom are comforting themselves and off on a honeymoon. But uh, it's been a a great interim. Um, I got involved because I have lived in that area all my life. And term limits had come, and everybody was talking about uh, getting new people to run. Well, and I was recruited by Senator Green the former senator from the 13th and the former house member but i can tell you the night i walked into that meeting when they were all looking for replacements in a frenzy for all these people being termed out i ended up having to work late and i think i was working at wood river at the oil refinery and i came i was in my work boots and i I looked like i came off a construction site and everybody was like we're gonna let her replace you know (laughs) she's gonna run in your position well my family had been involved in politics and I grew up with it. I was very interested and I had uh, I had a buy-in into the community I still do I you know everybody's people move people have come back but I, I stay I stay there and they're like, well are you leaving when you term out I, I doubt it my next move will be Calvary That's what I always tell the kids. I one time was seriously thinking about moving out of the area and my children had a fit. Now, those that own homes don't live in my area, but they seem to gravitate. They have stay vacations at my house. We had a house full last weekend, just the kids coming back to North County. And they were kids that grew up in the neighborhood. So it's a good place. I I think sometimes that that area of St. Louis County uh, gets taken for granted and there's assumptions made that shouldn't be made. So that's one of the reasons I got into politics was to take care of the folks out there.
3: Now, you're, I, I think, even when you came into the Senate, you had been in the House for eight years. You took like a two year layoff. Mm-hmm. You won a contested Democratic primary and a general. Um, how has your experience been so far in, in a general semi? Just from conversing with you over the last few months, it seemed like you were really heavily involved in, in some big ticket issues like the Fontaine, um situation. Well,
2: that was my that was uh, my main focus in the house was Bell Fountain Habilitation Center. Uh, And for those that don't know, it is a state run facility that takes care of folks with severe developmental disabilities. At one time, the census there was over 500 clients and they're down to about 175. Mm. And it, it you know, the folks that have been moved out didn't want to be moved out. And a lot of people still want to be there. There is a difference of opinion on what type of care that folks with these disabilities should have, but there's something called Olmstead that requires that they be offered all the services available: institutional settings, um, uh, home settings, whatever they prefer. The state depart, the state of M- mental health department of the state of Missouri was in the process of closing down places mm-hmm. like Bell Fountain Habilitation Center, and I think. Joe and Jason, you were both up there when Senator Blunt announced in his State of the State that they were- Governor Blunt, yes. Governor Governor Blunt, Blunt. yeah. Closed Bell Fountain Habilitation Center. Well, that was the first time they showed the State of the State on a jumbotron in the galleries up there. (laughs) And all these employees from Bell Fountain Habilitation Center were sitting in the galleries looking at the jumbotron they received from their governor that they were going to lose their jobs. They were going to shut these facilities down. Well, between myself and community leaders and really the parents up there that have children up there, and we call them children. Some of them are older than I am. I know one client that is my age. Her parents happen to be friends with my parents, and she went in there when she was about eight or nine years old. So, and there was a fella that was a former legislator that you may not know, Jason, but Joe should remember Jim Mulvaney. Yes. And Jim Mulvaney was, I was watching something the other day, a movie with one of the kids, and it showed a mental health facilities from like the late 50s and the early 60s, and it was a home for children with Down syndrome. Well, it was a horrible place. Well, and that's what Bell Fountain used to be before Jim, the Jim Mulvaneys of the world came around. And that was his pet peeve. He happened to be a very close friend of my father's. And when I ran for politics, he says, I don't have a dog in the fight. He says, I take care of that place, as will you, Mm. was exactly what he said. And once you're up there and you see these folks and some cannot communicate like we communicate, but you know when they know when you're talking to them and addressing them in their own ways, it's just it's something you can't turn your back on. And my last year up there, that was the only project in the state that was funded, and we built nine new group homes up there, and they're beautiful. I mean, they are absolutely wonderful. They're more of a home setting. They're not the big institutional buildings you see, and that is the one thing I am most proud of from serving in the House.
1: Now, what is the status of, uh, because you mentioned that the population there has Mm -hmm. declined. A, I'm assuming there are still people with those types of disabilities living somewhere are they getting the right I mean are, are they getting similar care or different types of care well the there's other yeah
2: there's other bell Fountain is the only place isn't the only place of course right and a lot of people chose to move their ki- children into group homes be and the parents the parents were fearful they're older and when it first started they were really afraid so a lot of folks just moved them out it was just kind of a flight and moved them into group home situations or private homes. You know, the worst place for folks like that is a nursing home because yes. they are not trained to take care of those folks. But the census up there is still hovering around 175 folks. So it's about a third of what it was, say, 12, 15 years ago. Is there ago. a
1: thought of whether or not the population will grow? Is the, the it will not f-
2: grow. That place will be used for what it does. Now, for the folks that are there, it'll always have a census about that much, and it's kind of used to triage folks to see where they can go or where another place is, you know, another suitable situation for them. Um, It's not exactly what we would like it to see. I would like to have seen it stay at the same census it was, of course, because it was also a big employer in the district Mm -hmm. for folks because uh, when you have... Four hundred folks up, like with those kind of disabilities, you can imagine what the staffing situation was. I think at one time we had over seven hundred employees there. So um, it's something. It's it's come full circle. It's something that things change. Do you understand what I'm saying? Right. You know, and this is what we were left with after going from gonna close. Now we're a viable community, and they're a viable part of Bel Fountain neighbors and North St. Louis County. But it's a a viable place within the community, and it's still a community within a community. All the services are still up there. They were able to uh, do some work, and the swimming pool therapy pool is still up there. They have a full-size swimming pool up there, Mm -hmm. and an auditorium. They still have their dances and their picnics and stuff for the folks, but uh, the census will never change. It will still stay where it is. And... They're sent to group homes, or some people still end up in nursing homes. And it's it's sad because those kind of facilities are not staffed to serve that uh, population.
0: Well, let's talk about one of the biggest issues facing your district. Your district does encompass Riverview Gardens, and yes. um, that school district will be spending millions of dollars to bus their students from the unaccredited school district of Riverview Gardens to Melville and possibly another school district because Melville only has a certain number of spots. How do you see this situation being resolved and how will the state legislature respond when they convene next year?
2: Okay, before I – let me put a caveat on this statement. You know, as a parent, and I don't know if you are a parent or not, but as parents – If your children are in a failing school district or they are in a school that is not performing and they are not receiving the education that you think they should receive, I would do this, and I would assume any parent that that is concerned about their child's education would pull their child out and get them someplace where they were getting their education, the education that they needed. With that said, I think that the reason that Melville was chosen— and I think that the reason the other district was uh, Francis Howe— Normandy other, will be yes. busing their students to Francis Howe. And I and I think that—and I don't want the kids to leave the district, but I think that's a decision made by the parents. But I think those districts were chosen. For one thing, they are geographically unacceptable, especially where I live. Well,
1: you mean geographically unacceptable to some of the parents. Yes, because
0: it's if, it's about a 45 if, to right. an hour drive. And
2: if you're a person that relies on by state to take you to work and you got to put your kid on a bus to go to Melville in the morning, I I don't know that I'd want to do that. I'd want my child close to wherever I work or close to home. So I think that that and I could be way off base, but I think that that was chosen in an effort to keep the kids Closer to the district, and I think it kind of backfired. You mean
1: discouraged yes, discourage the be parents. be discouraged from leaving.
0: There yeah. have been many other people who have, yeah, who that's, have not suggest, a, you know, that's not
2: Yeah, that's not right. a radical view of
3: the situation. But, right. yeah. yeah. you know, but I, I, mean, you
2: know I'm, I'm not, I don't want anybody to think I'm seeing black helicopters, but I really think that that was one of the reasons, and I can understand. The tax dollars are going up, but the bottom line is that if you're in a failing school district, you're paying taxes, and we pay a lot of taxes up in that school district, so you, your child deserves the same education that all the kids in uh, thriving school districts deserve. So we need to find out, and uh, State Representative McNeil, I was speaking with her this morning, because none of us, and if somebody tells you they have the golden egg or the answer to this, they're crazy. But she has an idea that maybe we should extend, spend, extend the school year for failing schools. Hmm. Have them go to school longer and have a different criteria set than what we have now, different goals that they have to meet till they get back on their feet now, the question is who pays for that? Hmm. Right. you know do we have to come up with a different structure where those districts have to pay more taxes so These are all questions that we're going to be discussing because I have always said when it comes to. I have always supported public schools, but I have also always said that we can't keep telling these folks with school choice and everything else no, 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 if we put our hands in our pockets and we don't have a solution.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: you know this happened twenty years ago, this law was wrote, and decisions were made, and we made waited till mid to the final hour to say. Oh, yeah, there's a problem. Let's start looking at it. We knew there was a problem, but it snuck up on us and we let it do it.
3: Do you think that there was going to be legislative consensus on this issue? Because it seems like in 2011 and 12 legislators tried to do this at a time when you were in the legislature, by the way. I just want listeners to know that it seems like it always gets ensnared in this, you know, public school versus, quote unquote, school choice debate. Do you think there's going to be more urgency now that the situation is unfolding? Or do you think it will be? I
2: I think so. And I also think that if we had good public schools across the board – we wouldn't have so much contention between the two groups. There would be no reason for it because any rational person can look at our school districts and they can look at, um, say, the religious schools, the Catholic schools, uh, the Lutheran schools. If the Catholic system and the Lutheran system closed down tomorrow, the public schools could not accept those sc- students and adequately take them in and because vice versa. Because there's, there's so many. Right. Right. I, you know and that statement is was more truer 10 years ago in the private schools or I call them parochial schools cuz there is a difference between, between the, private schools and parochial right. schools. Right. Correct, correct. Usually it's a big dollar sign, but there is a difference and it depends on who's running them. But both systems can work hand in hand and I think if we had we did not have these failing schools, we wouldn't have to have these other discussions. I well, think they'd be centered more around um homeschoolers versus uh, education in now, general.
1: Now, what sort of, uh, since all this started a couple weeks ago, the whole controversy, have you been communicating with other legislators? Have legislators been calling you? And what sort of message, I mean, what sort of backroom talk is there about
2: Well, this? I haven't heard a lot of backroom talk other than what I've told you about, um, the discussion that uh, representative mcneil and i had today we were at north county inc's legislative breakfast but um i can tell you this that i'm what i'm very surprised at and i know they're working hard we have a new superintendent well both of the failing districts in the st louis area they have new superintendents so what a what a mess for these guys to come into but they took the job so i'm sure they're up for the challenge but i am shocked at the lack of phone calls now right that I say that? I'm sure my phone will <laughs> ring off the hook. Yes, all six but, people that listen to this <laughs> podcast are well, going to call Well, you. this will be a litmus <laughs> test, Jason. But there is uh, – I've received under 10 calls on this issue. And the questions I have gotten, which I've received some questions from parents, very few, but I've received a lot of questions from local officials, aldermen, mm-hmm. local mayors. Really? Yeah, and they they should be concerned. And I it lies with the legislature. It does lie with us. I'm not going to say that the buck can be passed on mm-hmm. and make excuses. There are no excuses. It, our children are our future and unless we fix this, we're we're in big trouble.
0: Well, how how is this resolved? Because you're talking about an unaccredited school district spending a lot of money, um, you know, maybe as much as 10 to 15 million dollars on sending students with parents who are adamant that their child get a good education. So these are the students that the mm-hmm. school district does not want to lose. And they're spending all of this money not to make their own school district better. So how, how, does, how does Riverview Gardens get out of this unaccredited problem?
2: Well, they're not spending the money willingly to not make their district better. Oh, sure. You know, I mean, that's but, a state But how law. does it get out the of the cycle? Right, right, exactly. right, right. No, I don't know. And these are questions we have to. And that is what preempted my conversation with uh, Representative McNeil this morning, because she has an education background. Mm-hmm. Uh, I spoke to a teacher, Frances Howe. I was uh, on vacation a little bit last week. And I said, so uh, what do you think? And she says, well, I have 15 kids in my and I don't know if she, I think she taught first grade. She says, I have 15 kids in my class. So I will be primed for receiving some of those kids from Normandy. And she says, I don't have a problem with it. She says, I can teach a first grader. Mm -hmm. A first grader comes in, and they don't have the preconceptions. I think if you don't take the... We need a system where we start at the bottom to fix it. That's the only place we're going to fix it Mm -hmm. in our grade schools. Because once they they're lost when you get to seventh and eighth grade middle school and high school i don't know how you turn that around but i think if you can keep a kid on track from first grade and you can keep them in the same place you know i talked to a school superintendent this morning and i i don't know what district he was with i can't remember and he's been getting they've been getting calls about folks wanting to make sure they're within the district that they can still come there. Well, they were transfer students. So they were in his district already using another address. Now they just Whoa. happen to see what I'm saying. Yeah. yeah. So now they just <laughs> happen to be. So there's going to have to be compliance officers hired, say at Riverview or wherever they go to make sure, because I have had an alderman in my community that has said for years, a lot of these kids don't live here. So – and I don't know where they came from because my answer was a kid deserves an education.
3: So I'm looking at – you have a sheet right there, and I'm not sure if that's the things that are going to be overridden or possibly been vetoed by the governor. These are just –
2: these are just – you know – we're segueing here. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. We're okay. This is our segue into Governor Nixon's veto pen. So there's, yeah. he
3: vetoed, I think, 29, 29 non- bills. But he's really bills.
1: only campaigning really hard on the one, yeah. which is the 253, the tax cut bill.
3: So right. my theory all along with that bill is you know, there may be votes that get lost in the Senate. I'm not sure. But in the House, it just doesn't seem like they have the votes to override it there. Um, with the three Republicans that voted against it and with Ed Schieffer and uh, Hodges and possibly to dropping off. Do you think that's dead in the water? Do you think there's a chance that that could get overridden in, in your opinion?
2: I don't know. And I, I read like you do the blogs and this is where this came from. Yeah. But I there's a chance. It's a scary thing. I really think that when that bill passed. Everybody in those chambers were looking around at each other, thinking, "What did we just do?" I think they were shocked that it passed.
3: The tax cut bill. Yes. Is it I, just I, because I, they just didn't expect it to well, pass, um, or just yeah. just what was yeah, in it? Yeah,
2: I, I think they didn't expect it to pass, and I don't know if I have it here in this list, but it's like eight hundred million dollars. Yeah, it's, I, it, that's up, just up to a prescription. Billion. That's yeah. just a prescription stuff that'll be put on. The whole is $800 million, and that would be equivalent of shutting down Missouri Department of Mental Health throughout the state. Okay? Yeah. But what it will do is you're going to be taxing your prescriptions. You're going to be taxing Which people on right. Right, fixed incomes. Um, uh, people that can't afford to buy groceries
1: now. So, that you're, still need so you're,
3: you're still a definite no on oh, that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, no,
2: well, I'm
1: kind of, li- I don't know, Jason. What do you think? <laughs> Is there, because one of the things I was wondering about was now you have several groups that are already running ads. Most of those groups are wholly or largely funded by uh, donations from one man, uh, financier Rex Singfeld. Because we don't have campaign donation limits in this state, Sinkville can also give money to any candidate and often has given.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, so there's a potential that some of these people wavering in the House, there may be potential donations that they may be told would come their way if they would vote to override. I mean, I'm hearing that there's a lot of hardball going on, a lot of discussions. Now, granted, they were focusing largely on the House, but as a senator, I mean— is there any chance there would be any sort of filibusters, or is that going to be on something else? Or is it pretty much since the Democrats are so much outnumbered in the Senate, you guys are going to hopefully rely on the House to block some of these uh, overrides? Well,
2: you know, I'm always a good foot soldier, Joe. So when my orders come down, I'm, I'm willing to take them. And I don't—we have not met about— um, the upcoming veto session. But personally, if I'm asked, I'm going to stand up on it because this is going to hurt a community I serve. Mm-hmm. And we have, you know, you've watched it over the last 10 years. I've seen you both up there in the halls, and I don't know what your opinions are, but my opinion is when we make decisions like this, we always, we have skipped over even the middle class and we are blatantly putting it on the backs of the folks that can never afford it. Mm-hmm. And that's that's where we are with this kind of legislation. Um, I think that there is room for a compromise and that we need to go back next year and work on something different than 253.
3: Now, you kind of mentioned that you were, quote-unquote, you know, willing to stand up loyal foot soldier. You were kind of heavily involved in some filibusters on bills that were perceived as, you know, antagonistic toward organized labor, quote-unquote, paycheck deception, paycheck I forca- I there forgot he the goes moniker. with that segue again. <laughs> it's <general>. it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it, it's the bill protection. dealing with payroll deduction. <laughs> that yeah, is it's the a most mouthful. neutral. <laughs> it's so, a mouthful. So I guess yes. my I guess my my, my question and that was that was a horrible segue. I apologize. <laughs> well, for... and
2: really, the bill that I was involved the most in was, was the uh, Senate Bill One, yes, which second was injury second fund. injury fund, yes, second and fund. the prevailing wage. Prevailing wage. So
3: my guess, my general question is, you know, I've always perceived that there's enough filibuster power in the Senate to really stop things, and even if you it goes to the Governor who he vetoes it and there's probably not enough support, how is it kind of what's been kind of your experience on those issues in the Senate? Do you think that labor has a strong enough block there to kind of block things, or do you think they're they're you know outgunned and constantly Well, under if attack? I would
2: say that we are strong enough, I would be letting my guard down. Mm-hmm. There's always room for improvement. And I don't know how much, uh, just for an explanation for all six of your listeners, I'm sure Joe has thousands of them, (laughs) but the six of your folks that are listening. (laughs) He's got more than me. (laughs) What what paycheck uh, deception, since I'm president of the Missouri Building and Construction Trades, is what we call it, what that means is representation that you don't have to pay for, is what that bill is all about. So that means that um, I could be not a member of your union, but I receive the same benefits, I am negotiated the same wage as Joe is who pays union dues. And that's not fair. She probably
3: knows more. She was actually in a union at the Post-Dispatch. Yeah,
2: and that doesn't, um, that's not fair to the members. Uh, We are way past an age where folks think that labor leaders are big thugs that drive fat cars and have fat wallets. I'm here to tell you that I've seen both sides of it, and I grew up with the labor leaders of today, and they're young men with college degrees and sometimes young women, and this is the atmosphere they grew up in. They're middle-class working people, and they just want to provide their members with a nice middle-class living.
1: Now, Speaker Jones has indicated, and hopefully, we're going to be lucky enough to have him. Yes, the next Tuesday. next, next Ooh, week as the next guest. We'll see. He can add another. This, this will be. A, seven.
3: I, I'm sure this will be a well listened to one as, as well as this one. <laughs> yeah, because actually,
1: you're dealing with a lot of great stuff. Uh, has indicated that next session he definitely wants to go for um, right to work again, uh, and that he's going to be serious this time because it's his last year as speaker.
2: Well, what? that statement there just frightens me in the first
3: place. He wasn't serious last time.
2: Well,
1: I don't That's, know. I'm just <laughs> you know. saying that he yeah. serious. But that like back to
3: my statement before. It seems like it may sometimes pass the House. Oh, excuse me. I dropped a water bottle. But it always kind of just dies in the Senate because there's this – block of pretty much all the Democrats are going to filibuster. Right. You'll usually have three or four Republicans that maybe are with you. Really, the only way I see that passing the Senate is a PQ at this point. Right. Is, is that your intent, Stu? To- uh, yeah.
1: And, and might I, they do that? And might
2: they do that I don't know. during the veto I don't session? Know. I, you know, I have to say I served with anybody that is in that Senate right now. I served with them in the House unless they went were elected after I left, which mm-hmm. was only two years, and that would include... Um,
3: Sifton, I think.
2: Sifton, Romine, um, Leibla. Yes. And um, Wallingford. Yes. And I, I've i worked real close with uh, Romine on the labor issue, on the prevailing wage bill. He was a great ally. Mm-hmm. And I have found many of the people on the other side of the aisle, the new guys that I've worked with, to be um, willing to listen and they want to learn. They want to do the right thing. They don't. One, and I think that's a benefit of coming, uh, spending little time in the House and coming into the Senate, which is such a small uh, group of individuals that everybody has a say in the Senate. I was really surprised at that. Everybody warned me that I was really going to like it and that I was going to have the ability to do things over there. And I I served in leadership in the House, but your leadership only allows your leadership is only as good as the majority party right. allows it to be. Right. And if you have that mind frame, you'll do well over there and you'll forge relationships. Mm-hmm. But these folks, in, you know, they actually, well, what is it that you need that is going to make you agreeable to that bill? I was shocked when I was asked that. And then I was even, call it double shocked, when it got into the bills. My big thing with the second injury fund was um, mesothelioma and uh, industrial diseases. And that that, they, that became a big part of the I fight in the a, House. Yeah. 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 And— we made a deal, and they didn't like it in the House. They didn't like the deal, the compromise we made. Senator Roop and myself worked on and a lot of other people. They didn't like that uh, compromise in the House. I know the minority leader was furious about it, and we're good friends. But it was a compromise. I feel like I protected a group of individuals that um, hopefully that folks that are dying from that type of disease, it won't be happening anymore because we don't use asbestos. You know, that that that'll be phased out through attrition through uh, just by a matter of years. And we don't we don't know. And that's what we did with the second injury fund as far as they were concerned. It it grandfather or it sunsets at a certain point. And the point to that being was that we hopefully there will be no more asbestos cases by mm-hmm. then. But then we'll we'll have to go back and look at it.
3: So one more topic that I want to quickly touch on before I guess we, we run out of time is an issue that I've been following for almost over a year now. We've talked about this as well as the foreclosure mediation ordinances in St. Louis County and St. Louis City. And I, I like talking with you about it because you either proposed or supported a statewide foreclosure ordinance. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I don't know if you sponsored it while you're in the House, but I know that you've been well versed on the issue and were very much against the bill that kind of rescinded them that eventually went into effect because Correct. the governor didn't do anything on it. So I wanted to ask, you know, rather than go into, you know, what happened here, what went wrong, where do you think the state goes next with this issue? Do you think that maybe after this there'll be more support for a statewide standard or do you think that the, the powers that be that fought against this tooth and nail are just going to be fighting against something like that as well.
2: Well, I'm sure the opponents will continue to fight against it. But folks like me and the supporters and the folks that brought this legislation to me originally, well, we have to choose another avenue. We have to fight harder. And, um, you know, the life of a bill takes three or four years. So we, I really never thought that my bill would go anywhere. But I really didn't think that the other bill would go anywhere either and it did and that's what's hurtful because that was a big step when st louis county signed in that ordinance it
3: was a striking ordinance oh, because it was, it was so different from yes. state law state law has a very quick foreclosure right. process this slowed it down and tried to stop although mistake. all
2: that's dead now i mean the bottom
1: line right. is yes. that's
3: it's all dead, dead but now. we
2: could we need to do it statewide you know, because the argument—the argument last year—and you can't do anything like that because there's too many little laws. Well, I didn't see any reason why not to let that ordinance stand since there isn't anything like that in the state until we have something. You know, it's St. Louis County. St. Louis County's foreclosure law is not going to affect Dent County. Bottom line, they're two different um, municipalities. So I—I'm was heart sick that it. It passed, and I just think that we need to continue to fight and be stronger next year and come up with uh, something better, maybe some kind of compromise that we can sit down with the banking community and come together with something that will help the folks because, as you know, in this area, it was one of the hardest hits in home foreclosures. Absolutely. Correct. The
3: Correct. issue will still remain even yes, though this the is Yes, the issue
2: gone. is not resolved.
0: Well, I think that just about does it for, for this week's show. Um, But as Joe mentioned earlier, uh, next week we should be having um, House Speaker Tim Jones on, so you'll want to tune into that one. Uh, You can read all of my stories at stlpublicradio.org. You can read all of Joe and Jason's stories at stlbeacon.org. You can follow me on Twitter at CSMcDaniel. You can follow Jason on Twitter at J. Rosenbaum. And you can follow Joe on Twitter at Uh,
1: J. Manis. That's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S.
0: And you can follow the senator on Twitter at Walsh Chino. Thank you very much for joining us today. We'll be back next week. Until then, so long.